0: All right, Acts chapter 2, uh, and as you know, we, uh, we're we in our first section of the book of Acts, and I told you how that the book of Acts basically breaks down around two places, and so forming for us then three sections, and the first break is in Acts chapter 7, and then, of course, the second break is in Acts chapter 20, and then, so everything falls down on that, and that's the easy outline, breakdown that you'll want to have. And we're into the first section right now. And in the first section, we're seeing, you know, where he's dealing specifically with the nation of Israel. And uh, we're going to look at that. And uh, we did last time. We're going to look at it again in depth today. And then in the second section, we get into the church age proper. And then in the third section, then we get into Paul uh, in prison. And uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that. Now, in the first section, I told you this, that it's built around, uh, it's built around uh, uh, Peter preaching five messages. And then the last message that gets preached is Stephen's. And uh, so in each one of these messages, you see that we're dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, and I've told you before, the standard teaching is... The fact that uh you know that we're 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 in the early church, Christian church, the body of Christ, and so pastors, teachers, everybody that I know that it, other than a few guys have just completely missed this point here and and just really get off track and there, if there's any one book in the Bible as far as getting your Bible in a cohesive pattern. It has to be the book of Acts. So you have got to get this book down if you ever have any illusion of ever getting the Bible together. So, you know, that's that's just where we're at. And we came up to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and we stopped there because I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, devote it from this point on. And now we know, and I've showed you in Acts chapter 2, that all this is dealing with the nation of Israel. There's no Gentiles here. Uh, There's no church in effect as we know it. And this is dealing with the early Jewish church uh, who are still looking for the second coming of Christ and to get their kingdom. And you remember the first seven chapters are simply built around the question that they ask without restore unto uh, Israel the kingdom at this time. And, they, and, they, and, and he doesn't answer them. So they're operating in that mindset. We've already seen that they got somebody to replace Judas because they knew that when Christ came, they're going to sit on 12 tribes, uh, 12 thrones, judging Israel. And they, they were one short. And now, as we get into here, uh, and we're into his uh, second message, we see where he's giving Israel instructions of what they must do. Now, it's no great wonder that, uh, you know, the book of Acts is the hotbed for every heresy for baptism regeneration that you're going to find. The Church of Christ love Acts chapter 2, and so does everybody else. So I'm going to point out what they do so you can better uh, see how that they approach it, even though, Uh, it's a thing where, you know, just reading the chapter itself, you wouldn't need to worry about it if you know your Bible. Now, let's pick it up in verse 34. He says, For David is not not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know, here again, Israel, assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom thou hast, ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Now, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, they asked the question, what shall we do? Now, the, the crooked Uh, Church of Christ and everybody else that wants to propagate water baptism will add to that. And boy, you hear them when they're preaching this and you hear them when they're teaching it. They will add to it, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? And of course, they're not asking that. You got to leave it in the context of where you're at. What they are asking is what shall we do based on what he told them in verse 36 the fact that you have crucified uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God hath made both Lord and Christ. So they're saying, what shall we do because of that? And then what follows in verse 38 is one of the seven baptisms in the Bible, and you know we've been through that already in Bible Institute. And this is the baptism of repentance for the nation of Israel based on them crucifying the Messiah. And so he says in verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins that ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. Now, this baptism here, and because of the fact that it's a water baptism, this is where the baptism for salvation crowd hangs out. And of course, this goes back to the baptism of Moses back in uh, uh, Exodus, uh, early in Exodus chapter 13 or 14 when they get baptized in the cloud, when they go through, like the Bible says in First Corinthians. So this is based on a, 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 a picture of what Israel is to do because they have crucified Jesus. Now, notice that when you and I got baptized, Matthew chapter 28, we got baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here... It's not that way at all. It's in the name of Jesus. He says, uh, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Up in verse 36, he says, made that same Jesus. So notice that it's about Jesus. And it's not about the Holy Spirit of God. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about uh, what he said in verse uh, 36 that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. So when they get baptized, they get baptized in the name of Jesus, whom they crucified, and Jesus Christ, because that's what God made him. So by getting that baptism, they are c- confessing as a nation. Even though it's an individual baptism, they're confessing as a nation the fact that, uh, that Jesus, uh, that they crucified, was the Christ. and And so... Uh, when they hear verse 36, what they've done, it convicts them. They ask, what shall we do because of we've killed him? And then he tells them the instructions. And then he says in verse 39, and this is where the charismatic really gets out of whack and he just goes to town and never comes home. Um, For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God uh, shall call. Now, the promise there uh, is the promise of Daniel chapter nine and other places in the Old Testament when he says "You," and then he says, "Your children," and then he says, "Those are far off he 's talking about the three states of the nation of Israel, you her here now, your children, which are in your family." And then the Jews that are afar off, that's the Jews that have been dispersed from 606 BC, that are everywhere out there across Asia Minor and Lord knows where, whom they are now going to try to have to reach. And when they can't reach them through Acts 1 through 6 and 7 then he switches over, and watch this, he switches over now to the church age, and now the gospel of the grace of God comes in. We're no longer dealing with Israel, and now Paul goes after these Jews to put them in the body of Christ and get them saved. You got to see that. And he says, for the promise is unto you uh, and to your children. Come on back to Daniel 9 here for a second. Pick it up in verse 5. We have sinned, Daniel 7, 5, and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets which spake in thy name uh, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all that the people of the land. And this is basically what Peter is preaching to them. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, or righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as this day, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel. Now here it is that are near, and that are afar off, through all the countries, whether thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have uh, trespassed against thee. So there you see that uh the ones afar off are the ones that have been dispersed through the captivity of six o six, and of course that's exactly uh you know that's exactly what uh he's talking about in Acts chapter two, so you have to see that Acts chapter two is dealing with the Jews in that in that context, and then he says, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. And the untoward generation here is obviously the apostasy of the state of the nation of Israel under the leadership of the scribes, the Pharisees, and everybody else. Now, look at verse 41. There's a paragraph, Mark. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And of course, this is where you're going to find now if you jump up here in verse 47 at the end. <clears throat> let's read that one. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. <clears throat> now, this is where the, the average Baptist preacher, um, and I have grew up with it all my life, this is where they try to make this the church that you and I are part of. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many times, you know, they made a reference to the 3,000 souls saved and and then that they're added to the church daily. And they try to make that the church age of today. And of course, uh, it's a thing where that's not any way resemble, any way, shape, or form what you have here. The church, as we know it, has not even been revealed yet. Uh, some of the things have happened, but nobody knows it yet, and it's not revealed till after Acts seven, when they make their final rejection, and then Paul <coughs> starts his ministry to reveal the church of, of of grace, and that you and I are part of. So they read things like this, and because they don't pay attention to the Bible, and you got to remember that these guys, if 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 there's any defense for them, and it's hard to defend them, but if there is any defense, it's a defense of the fact that these guys are victim of a system. And the system that they have been trained by, the system that, um, that they have submitted themselves to, lures them into the mindset that you just accept what we're going to teach you without ever investigating the Bible itself. So when they get up, and I've seen it, like I said, all my, all my life. When you hear these guys get into this and try to make this the church, you know that it, they're, they're now a victim of what they have been taught. And the system that trained them taught them not to think for themselves. The system that trained them taught them to be more loyal to the school than they were the Word of God. And boy, do you see this everywhere, every place you go. In Christianity, and I know many of you, most of you, if any of you never see this because you're not in that world, any in that world, and thank God for it. But it's actually been a thing where they would judge a person's biblical qualifications or spirituality based on where that person got trained. And uh, they would actually tag to, uh, you know, it a, a deeper sense of, of you knowing the Bible because you went to school there. And, you know, the big one today is the Dallas Theological Seminary down there in Texas someplace. Uh, But back in the day, you had them all over the place. You had Bob Jones University. You had, uh, you know, Tennessee Temple, Baptist Bible College, Cedarville College. You had all of these places, uh, Midwest uh, Bible College up in Detroit. You had all these places that were being tagged with, if you go there, this is a lot better than going here. And all that did was take the people out of their local church that wasn't teaching them the Bible anyhow because the pastors were not equipped to do it, sent them to a non-biblical structure where they not only got bought into a system of terms that robbed them of the going to the Bible and thinking for themselves they went into a system that actually took the Bible from them, and that what they wanted to do, by the devil's design, <coughs> was to take the kid's authority from the Bible and put it in the authority of the school, or the Greek and the Hebrew, or whatever you know was the um, uh, was w- w- whatever they put it in. And that's exactly where they're at. So when you read a passage like this, they have been taught and trained to just buy into it. So when they see the word 3,000 souls saved, uh, added, and then they see the word church up in verse 47, they haven't got a clue that there's at least four or five different churches in the Bible, and none of them are the same. The word church means called out assembly. So you you, you look at it in that in that sense. And, of course, the nation of Israel, when they're called out of out of Egypt, they're called the church of the wilderness. And uh, that's not the church that you and I are part of in any way, shape, or form. In the tribulation, there's seven churches, but they're not our church. So you begin to see how this thing breaks itself down. And then when you get into chapter 42, it's just like they turn off the lights and never come back home. And they, the people of this chapter here, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They're not in the doctrine of the New Testament local church. They're in apostles' doctrine. And, of course, that's completely different. The apostles' doctrine is laid out in Matthew chapter 10, and it doesn't remotely have anything to do with the church. So we see that they're not following New Testament doctrine. They're following the apostles' doctrine. And I'll just tell you right now, in this church age, in this dispensation, if you follow the apostles' doctrine, you're going to split hell wide open and you're going to burn like a torch. There's no salvation for you and me in the apostles' doctrine. It was to Israel. And so, but they see that, you see, and all they, all they see is 3,000 people saved and added to the verse 47 of the church. Now look at verse 43, and here's where it even gets stranger. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now, that ought to be your first clue that this has nothing to do with the church unless you're a charismatic, because we now know that those signs and wonders are to the nation of Israel. They're not to us in any way, shape, or form. So we, 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 we know that now. And, uh, and, all thi- and, they, and, and And all that believed were together, and they had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, fundamentally, this is where Marxism starts. When Karl Marx wanted to come up with communism or socialism, it's a system that's defined in the book of Ecclesiastes where everybody is a a collective co-op type thing that nobody owns anything more than anybody else. And of course, uh, every heresy out there has to have it started in the Bible someplace, someplace. So Karl Marx got the idea, and he I'm not saying that he read the book of Acts and, and he decided to do it on that. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, what I am suggesting, that the spirit that drew Karl Marx knew everything about the word of God, and uh, so he comes up with this idea. But the real biblical aspect of having things common by which socialism and communism is built on is found in Acts chapter two now, having said that they 're not starting a commune here with communists and going to start a socialistic christian government that 's not what they 're doing again you 've got to stay in the context here. they are looking for the second coming of Christ, believing that he's going to come, so they are they are they are putting everybody in the same boat. They're showing their possessions and goods and they're giving every man what he needs because they think and believe, or at least they're counting on, that the Lord is going to come back so these things aren't going to matter anyhow. And that's what they're doing this for. They're doing it because they're looking and hoping for the intimate return of the Lord from which all these things won't matter anymore. And um, so they're dividing it up that everybody has what they need to wait for the Lord to come. That's what they're doing biblically. And now, another key thing in verse 46. And they continuing uh, daily with one accord in the temple. They're not in a church, they're in the temple. And of course, you know, when you would read that, um, you know, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You would think that you would catch it that the church in the temple is not the same as the church in the... uh, But I'll tell you right now, I'm just telling you, you can do with it what you want to do with it. This is why there was an era of Christianity. You don't see it anymore now much. You do, but in my day in the 50s, and the 60s, and the 70s, uh, it was rampant. Did you ever wonder why all these Baptist churches were called Baptist temples? I mean, you had Canton Baptist Temple, Kansas City Baptist Temple, Dayton Baptist Temple, Mansfield Baptist Temple, uh, Maslin Baptist Temple. Uh, they're all called Baptist temples. And the reason why they are is because of the doctrine and the heresy that was taught that Acts chapter 2, they're in the temple, but it's a church. So they, not having a clue what is going on, just got caught up in the idea that we are a Baptist temple. Now, I don't have a problem with that terminology at all. Uh, I don't. I, I, there's nothing wrong with calling your church the Canton Baptist Temple or the Maslin Baptist Temple or the Akron Baptist Temple. Not a thing. I'm explaining to you where that term came from. And I've been asked that a lot because somebody will see that and get thinking about it and scratch their head and say, where, why did they call themselves Baptist temples? It's just like it's two you know, extremes. Well, it is two extremes that stupid Baptists tried to put together out of Acts chapter 2. And so they know they're Baptist, and they see in Acts chapter 2 the word church, so they think that's them, and then they see they're in the temple, so to make that work, for them, they call themselves Canton Baptist Temple. And, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the stereotype for 30, maybe 40 years. And you still find it today. Uh, and, of course, it's, uh, but that's where it originates and that's where it starts. And that's because these guys didn't have the ability to see and understand uh, where it's at. You'll find that most of the true Bible-believing Baptist churches of that day didn't have the word temple in their name. Now, I'm not saying that, that 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 made them more, but I'm, what I'm saying is they understood the difference. And so you see it where, you know, sometimes you see it there and sometimes you don't. Somebody have a question over here? Yeah. So just like today, we have churches of all denominations spread throughout the city. But back then, I thought it would be like there was one central place that they went to. There's not like, Little churches, like little temples everywhere.: right? No, there was one central temple, but it does say that they're going house to house, breaking with bread. So I think it was a mixture of both. The temple wasn't like an auditorium where they all went and sat down. It's the Old Testament Jewish temple. Um, it's actually Herod's Temple because he built that one, but they're actually doing that, plus they're going around house to house. that they would get away with sitting in their temple you know, teaching these things and talking about these things. It seemed like they would kick them out because not everyone believed that Christ was the Messiah. Well there was a lot of controversy over it and it's a thing where and I'm sure that happened uh, but uh, even within the temple there were still people who taught what they wanted to teach but I think the main emphasis was not in the temple like we have a room here, and they had all the Jews show up at the temple. First of all, the temple wasn't that set up that way. I think that that's where the central teaching came out of, and then it went from home to home to home around it as they broke bread and, and, and did it that way. But you're right. I'm sure there was a controversy. Well, I know it is, because uh, I'll show you in the next chapter uh, a, a picture of that. But that's an excellent point. and Yeah, it's a thing where, but in, in my day, you know, and I, I just got walked into it. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was already well-established by the time I, I got into it. But, uh, you know, for many, many, many years, I did not understand why they called them Baptist temples. And people would ask me, and I, I said, I don't know. I guess, you know, just sounded that, that was the best. But then when I understood the book of Acts and I saw what was really happening in Acts 2, and I kept hearing these guys make this the church, nah, then the lights came on. And I began to see why that that is. So you see that they're in the temple and they're breaking bread from house to house. So there's a, there's a mixture of both here. And I would say that they're, uh, you know, uh, uh, they're one accord in the temple, basically in the sense of, you know, what they're believing. And then of course they're using what they believe and they're actually going house to house and breaking bread Uh, and singleness and and heart. And and they're looking for the Lord. And that's why they're distributing all their possessions. They're still in their homes. They're still doing it. And they want to make sure that everybody that they're in accord with has everything that they need. And in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And then he says, and the Lord added to the church daily, uh, such as should be saved. And of course, um, again, they they, they 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 read the word church and they immediately think that this is the church that you and I are a part of. And yet, you're clearly told that this church is still in the apostles' doctrine. Now, when we get into chapter three, we begin to see a, a, a little bit more insight into this. Three one. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being uh, the ninth hour. And that'll be about 3 p.m. And then a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked, And Peter, fasting his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he leaping up uh, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people that saw him walking and praising God uh, and they knew that it was he that sat at alms for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as a lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them into the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. Now, here's a case that I want you to see this. Now, I've told you that the book of Acts doctrinally doesn't have anything directly for you. But there's a lot of practical things that you can find here. And this will, story will be one of them. At some point in your life, most of you, if you, and many of you have already started this, uh, you'll begin to preach the Word of God. You're going to get into one of our, our our segments around here that allows you to have the opportunity to teach and preach the Word of God. And, um, and I'm not necessarily just talking about discipleship, but I mean you'll go to the mission, you'll go to rest home, you'll go... Uh, someplace, um, and you'll you'll have an actually bona fide opportunity to, to lay out the Word of God. You always want to be able to do, uh, when you're preaching something, to look at any story. And even though this has nothing to do with the church age directly, I want to show you within the story that if I was putting a sermon together and I wanted it to be a sermon about salvation... Even though this is a story of the salvation of the nation of Israel, when I look at this story, and stories in the Bible, you always want to take your time with them. you want to look. I'm not saying across the board that every story will unfold itself like this one, but you just want to take time and look at it. Now, I want to show you, if I was putting a sermon together, and I wanted to use it as to get people saved. And I wanted to. And I mean, I know there's lots of places I could go and lots of things that I could do, but we're here, and I want to show you how you would develop this one. Now, you know, I would get up, and the first thing I would I would talk about here is that this certain man is a picture of a lost person, and it's a picture of a lost person that the world has done him no favors but he finds god and the process of what happens when he finds god and it's a great picture of not only of you and me before we were saved but then how we got saved and then what our lives should be after we are saved so let me walk you through these and there's 10 things here and so you know you can Make that part of a picture of Gentile salvation because 10 the number of the Gentiles or not doesn't really matter to me. Now, the first thing I want you to see it says, A certain man, verse 2, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that enter to the temple. Now, the first thing I want you to see in verse 2 that this guy is absolutely helpless on his own. He has no walk with God, and he was born that way. And that is a picture of you and I being born into the wrong family, that we are basically the beggars of life, depending on everybody else and something else, because we really have no real relationship or walk with God. Now, the next thing I want you to see, also in verse 2, it says, they daily laid him at the gate. He's on the outside of the temple. He's not on the inside. That is a picture of somebody lame, no walk, a beggar, have nothing, and yet he's right there where the temple is, but he's not in it. And that's a picture of every unsaved man on this planet. That salvation is right there. But you've got to get it. Now the third thing I want you to see uh, is that he is a spiritual beggar. He doesn't have any blessings of God in his life. He's dependent on other people to give him what the Word of God wants to give to you. So, When he have issues, he is dependent on unsaved people, just like himself, to fix his problems. When he has marital issues, I'm not saying this guy was married, but in a practical application, he has marital problems, he has to go to an unsaved marriage counselor. He has personal problems, he goes to a psychiatrist. He has has to go to the world. And basically, he's at the world's, he's begging at the world for them to give him something. And so that's the third thing that we see. The fourth thing found in verse four here, well, verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked of alms. And Peter uh, fastening his eyes upon him when John said, look on us. And what we begin to see here uh, is the fact that uh, he doesn't see his real need he doesn't know that his real need is not the alms. His real need is to get healed by Jesus who has the power to heal him. And like an unsaved person, they get so structured to the world system that they think that they need the world, that the world has all the answers, yet they depend on everybody else to carry them and put them and give them something because they're begging in life. And they're missing the real truth is the fact that this salvation is just inside that gate. And he doesn't understand that. Now, the the fifth thing in verse 6, that Peter said, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, the, the thing that I would, I would deal with here in my message is I just carve off a little spot. And sometimes you want to do that in a message. You want to make a couple of points and then you just want to clear off a little spot and you, wanna, you want to reinforce what you've already said by taking one thing. And here what I would do at this point, i take verse 6 and I would talk about the fact that how that salvation is better than gold. I would talk about how that salvation is the real gold. And he has spent his whole life begging for the world's gold right outside the gate where the real gold was. And so when Peter and John show up to him, they say, hey, I don't have any physical gold and silver, but what I'm going to give you is better than the gold of this world. And that's where I would clear off a little spot and I would, I would work that angle. And, uh, and then the next thing in verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now, that's a picture of him getting saved. And the next thing I would point out is that salvation is instantaneously, instantaneous. It's not a process. It's not like the Charismatics say that you get saved and then you get the baptism of the Holy Ghost later based on Acts chapter 2, which they couldn't figure out either. No, salvation is, is absolutely instantaneous. The moment you ask Christ to save you, it's an instant. Right then, you are saved. And then I'd clear up another spot. And I'd look at... I'd look at verse 8, and it says, and he, and he, leaping up, stood and walked. And I'd take a little time with that, and I'd go back and I'd say, Look, some of you today may get saved, and you may trust Christ as your own personal Savior. And uh, I want to tell you that will be the greatest decision. You're like this guy here. You're, 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 you're outside the gate. You're begging from the things of the world. And nothing that they're going to give you is going to satisfy because the gold and silver they give you today, you'll spend it today and not have anything tomorrow. The real gold is what I'm going to give you. But I want you to understand, the day you get saved, which is instantaneously, and here's how I would make my point, stood and walked. You have to learn to take your stand before you can really walk. And I would make that point. You have to, before you can really walk with God and do something and be something with God, you have to learn to take your stand. And I would take a little time and I would would deal with that. And then the next thing I would deal with would be in verse 8 again. And him leaping up, stood and walked and entered them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising with God. Um. And uh, I, would, I would talk about that the great contrast in his life. Lame to leap. He was lame in the things of the world, but when he got saved, he's leaping now and walking with God. And I would take that little analogy <coughs> and, <coughs> and work on that for a little while. Then the next thing, number nine, <coughs> would be in verse, uh, verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, uh, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now, the next thing deals with the fact that there's such a drastic change in his life that the people who knew him from outside the gate now see him inside the gate. And boy, that is the great verse that once you get saved, You have to be the witness through your stand and through your walk. And then you begin to be everything that God wants you to be and other people will see it. And then the last thing, the 10 would be in verse 11. It says, they were filled with wonder and amazement, verse 10 at the end, and that which had happened unto him. And as a lame man which was healed held Peter and John... Uh, All the people ran together to them to the porch and called Solomon, greatly wondering. His conversion will lead other people to Christ. Now that is an incredible picture that if you wanted to teach somebody at a church, that's not something I would do at at the rest home or someplace with a, certainly not the mission because they'd never grab it. But if you're going someplace to preach at a church, if you're going to, and in times, uh, some of you will, and you're going to get a chance to, to teach the people who have some kind of fair understanding of the Bible, it's sermons like this that they, they look at that and they have never seen those things. But because you have the ability and the discernment to unearth those things right out of that passage, then it it, it displays an incredible picture and you can build that into any scenario you want it to go. And that's another thing you want to do with your preaching. You're preaching, some of you young guys, and you'll learn through this, you will, you will. But you never want to lock yourself into what you're just doing. Now, you want to stay on task, otherwise you get all over the place. But your preaching needs to be fluid enough that when you're up there preaching and you see... Or something comes in that you see that you can bend it to a a situation that you got to be fluid enough and and loose enough to be able to do that. Uh, You can't be so rigid in your preaching that you don't have the ability, uh, I call it God sending in a play from the bench, uh, that you can't adjust to that. And I know for myself, there have been many, many times when I have been preaching with a thought in mind and God just... Altered the thought and took it another way. And you have to be, you have to be, have the ability to do that on the fly. You don't have time to stop and pray about it. You don't have time to stop and, you've got to be able to trust the Holy Spirit of God if you gave this to Him anyhow, allow Him the ability. But you've got to be flexible enough and fluid enough. And, you know, have the depth to a certain degree that you're able to understand that, see that, and then incorporate that into what you're doing. That's really the key of of being able to be laying out the Bible in a good format. You just don't want to stay rigid in everything that you're doing, but you want to stay disciplined. You know, I hesitate saying that because we've had guys down at the mission that preached, not you guys now, but when we were all going down there years ago. We had guys down there preaching that when they got up to preach, they spent 30, 40 minutes, and when they were done, I had no idea what they were trying to say. And I guarantee you, if I didn't know what they were saying, nobody else did there either. And it's a thing where it's because they're all over the page. They haven't followed a biblical protocol or pattern in how you preach. They just get a bunch of verses together, and it's like one of those modern art masterpieces where the guy stands back on a six-by-six six canvas and just throws a lot of paint on it. And then everybody says, wow, that's really beautiful. I can interpret something out of that. Well, maybe you'll get it out of that, but you won't get it out of your sermon, I guarantee you. And it's a thing where you've got to be precise. You've got to know the theme of what you're going to say. And that's where you want to go. You want to say, at the end of what I'm saying, this is what I want them to know. Now, it may be one or two or three or four things. It may just be one thing. Here, it would be 10 things. But what you do is you you take whatever your single thing is that you're going to give them, and it may be multiple, and then everything else you do, you put in to support those things. You don't just go off on this trail or that trail or do this and that and this and not be able to tie it all together. And uh, the biggest mistake that guys preach make is they're not aware of who they're preaching to. And because they understand something, they think that the audience does. And so they'll get all these great ideas and they'll realize that, you know, when you're preaching, your goal is not to expose everybody to everything you know about the Bible. Your goal is to have one single thought that you want to give them or multiple thoughts. And then once you begin to lay those out, every other verse, every other whatever you get has to support what you're saying. If it doesn't, leave it go. And that is just, you can see here where this would be an absolutely incredibly um, easy format to put together. Then you could walk them through it just like I walked you through it. And then what I didn't do is didn't add things to it to, to, to make it come alive. I was just trying to show you, you know, how the process goes. So there's a case where they go into the temple. There's this guy here. Who needs to get what they have. And again, from a doctrinal standpoint, he gets healed. And his healing is a sign to the Jews, like we we talked about uh, the signs that the gift that Jesus did. And it has an impact on the people. But we take that story and we actually lay it out in a New Testament format that shows you exactly how you and I got saved. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's a great thing. So now, when we get to chapter uh, 3, verse 12, and you want to mark this here, uh, Peter starts his third message. And you want to mark these messages, and then, I, as I said, I'd put them at the front of the book of Acts so you know as a handy reference where they're at. And so and when Peter saw it, all the events of what had transpired with this guy who was lame... And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, clearly, clearly showing you um, that this is to the Jew. And uh, he says, "Uh, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why uh, look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness uh, we had made this man to walk? Now he's getting ready to say, and this is another good thing, I wouldn't necessarily put this into the sermon, but you could. Uh, But if I was dealing with somebody about winning people to Christ, I would use this as a verse to show you that it's nothing that you have. It's only what God has given you and done for you that you're able to do it for somebody else. And this is the point he's trying to make. He wants to make sure that these people do not miss the point that this is God dealing with Israel and they don't get confused and think that it's these two guys. And that's... And then he gets into uh, verse 13. uh, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. See, he keeps going back in every one of these sermons. He says it a different way, but he keeps going back till they have crucified the Christ. He, every sermon that he preaches, that's where he goes. He just doesn't say it the same way every time. But that's what he's trying to get before them because he knows that if they don't accept that, the Lord is not coming back. And of course, you see the end result of that in chapter 7 where they kill Stephen and then they don't come back. I mean, it's, it's done from there. And he says, but denied the Holy One and the just and and desire a murderer to be granted unto you. That would be Barabbas. And kill the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, wherefore uh, we are witnesses. And uh, it says here that, uh, uh, and his name through faith, uh, and, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know, Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness uh, in presence of you all. And of course, the perfect soundness here is for you and for me in the sermon would be the guy got saved. For Israel is the guy who was lame is now walking, leaping, and you know going uh, back on his life. And now, brethren, I would that through ignorance you did it Uh, as did also your fathers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And of course, uh, he's saying now that, uh, you know, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're ignorant uh, to this like your fathers were. But at the same time, you have the prophets. And the prophets have foretold that he was going to come and suffer and die, so you're not you're not in ignorance any longer. And then in verse 19, you have a paragraph mark, and this is where he he gets into what they need to do. And it's just like Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's is not the same. He says, "Repent, ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out." when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now this invitation is the, the nation of Israel as a nation. Notice, repent ye therefore and be converted. Israel as an individual, Jews as an individual could not be converted, but the nation of Israel will be converted. Romans chapter 11, that your sins may be blotted out. You see that in the Old Testament all the time. Uh, when the, from the, uh, when the times of refreshing shall come. Now, the times of refreshing will be the second coming of Christ going into the millennium. From the presence of the Lord, second coming into the millennium. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. Now, the times of restitution will be dealing with the nation of Israel. Israel needs to make restitution for what they did. That's why Peter is preaching to them in Acts chapter uh, 2 throughout his five messages so that they will get it and that, they'll, that, they, that, that, that the restitution of them killing Jesus uh, will, will take place which God has spoken by the uh, mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall uh, the Lord your God raise up uh, unto you of your brethren like unto me. Uh, Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever uh, he shall say to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So now he's, he's clearly running these things back to Moses. They knew who Moses was. Moses was the greatest leader that Israel had. He represents the law. Elijah is the greatest prophet that they had. He represents the prophets. And he brings up Moses because Moses, in their mind, if they know their Bibles, and they do, are going to show up before the times of refreshing. So he's making this reference. He's giving them everything that they should already know to bring them in line, to get them out of this spirit of falsehood that they're under that they can clearly see uh, what is unfolding, that if they want to get the kingdom that the Old Testament prophets have talked about, you have to make restitution for what you did. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel... And those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and this is the covenant that he made with Abraham back in Genesis 12 through 15, uh, that in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Now that's a reference to the millennium. It's also a reference to what God wanted to do with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He, he put salvation for the world, the Gentile world, in the nation of Israel. And if the Gentile world was going to find Christ in the Old Testament or get God or get into God, they had to become a Jewish proselyte. And by doing so, they got into that covenant as proselyte Jews, even though they're Gentiles, and they had to now follow the law, and basically, for all practical purposes, become a, a Jew, and that was the only way that they could get in. And that's what God's plan was. This is why He He He, he wanted Israel. And you see this in a in a in a capsule glimpse of forty years when Solomon comes to the throne. Solomon is a type of the millennial reign of Christ, and you see now. If you read those passages back there in his reign, 1 Kings 10 and those places, you will see that literally the whole world is coming to sit at Sodom's feet and to hear what the Lord is, Queen Sheba being one of them. And of course, many of those nations are listed back there for you. So this is what he was doing in the Old Testament and the plan. Of course, Israel dumped his word, and it all went to pieces. But what he's going to do in the millennium is he's going to bring it back and he's going to do the same thing. And uh, so this is where only in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, this is under the new covenant, but it's the same deal in this respect. You are children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth uh, uh, be blessed unto you, first God having raised up his son Jesus uh, uh, to him bless you in turning away every one of you uh, from his iniquities. Now, there's an interesting thing in verse 26 here. Um, And um, when you talk about the resurrection, one of the things that the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you is that Jesus Christ is not God. And they say that he's a created God, a lesser God, uh, but he's not God. And when you go through your Bibles, the greatest, uh, and, and, he's, and he's not part of the Trinity, that there is no Trinity really. And the greatest proof of, of, of Jesus Christ being God is in verse 26. It says, uh, and it also says it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, concerning the resurrection, it says that God raised Christ up. Now you want to get those two verses there and I'd put these things right next to verse 26. In John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21, now it tells us that Jesus will raise himself up. And then the third thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says that the Holy Spirit of God raised him up. Clearly, showing you that there is a trinity involved here, that it wasn't just God that raised him up. Jesus had the power to raise himself up, and the Holy Spirit of God had the power to raise him up, and yet he was only raised one time, and all three did it because that's the trinity. It's little things like that that are laying right on the surface that most people never see, never get, and never get a hold of. And it's those things that will give you the little extra insight into what you know uh, the Bible is dealing with and, and how it's laying itself out. So those are the kind of things that you want to remember. Now, I've told you before that all history and everything that is, goes down through history, and this is certainly true of where we're at and true of the church and true of your life, that when God moves in a direction to do something, then the devil moves in opposition. Now you've just seen three chapters where Peter has preached three messages uh, and, uh, and and laid some stuff out. And now in chapter four, here comes the opposition to what he's been saying. Verse 4-1. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they laid holds on them and, and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide, six o'clock in the evening. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and a number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and the scribes and a and and Anias uh, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now we get getting to see the opposition come in. And uh, it goes to show you that even though they were teaching in the temple, there was elements in the temple that was totally against that teaching. So now we have a problem arise, and it's, it starts in the temple because of what they're teaching. And I'm sure when this guy come be bopping in, leaping and doing handstands all over the place, it didn't help any either. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and the elders and the scribes, uh, verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter uh, lifted up, uh, uh, excuse me, then uh, Peter filled with the Holy Ghost and said unto them, ye rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, clearly showing you again, this is all Jews. Uh, if this day uh, uh, be examined of a good deeds done to the Im- impotent man, uh, uh, by uh, what means uh, he is made whole? Uh, be it known unto you all uh, and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified, he's going right back down the same road again. This time he's doing it in the temple. And he's still preaching message three, he hasn't got the message four yet. Uh, be it known unto all you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now there again, you want to mark that word whole because this man is also a picture of the nation of Israel. Uh, this is like the guy over there at the pool of Bethesda we studied in John. He's lame on his feet. He's, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's got no power, he's, he, and all those things, and he got healed. And this guy not only is a picture of of you and me getting saved, but he's also a picture of the nation of Israel and their spiritual condition. And when you find the word whole, that almost exclusively will be a watchword to show you that what you're looking at is a picture of the nation of Israel because they get made whole, uh, but at times of refreshing. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, and then First Peter chapter 2, verse 6 will be the verses that go along with that. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, uh, which has become the head of the corner, talking about Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must, uh, uh, we must be saved. And uh, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now that's a great verse in itself. Here, here is the scribes and the Pharisees who were the, were the key guys of, of the institutions of religion of their day. And yet here are two guys who are, in their estimation, are ignorant and unlearned. And uh, yet they marvel at them, uh, that they took knowledge of them. And what was the key that they'd been with Jesus? You see, that's the key. And we'll get into that a little bit tomorrow in our sermon when we get into John chapter 7. And beholding the man which was healed, going back to the beginning of the chapter, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Boy, ain't that the truth. Now, if you want a verse that really goes along with this, it's in Matthew, and I can't pull it right off the top of my head, but you know if you are familiar with it. It simply says, by their fruits you shall know them. And they can't say nothing against what they're doing, because they healed this guy who everybody knew and by the fruit of what they did, there's nothing to say. You may not like it. You may try to reject it, but there's nothing you can say because by their fruit, you shall know them. And here it is. There's the fruit. You may not like a church. You may not like this person. You may not like this family. You may not like this. You may be against them. At the end of the day, it isn't about whether you like them or whether you don't. It isn't about what they say or what they don't say. At the end of the day, where's the fruit? That's the key. And as here, uh, they could say nothing against it. Absolutely nothing. They didn't like it. They put him in jail overnight and held him and then brought him into a little meeting to try to find out what was going on. But the proof was with them, this guy that had just been healed. And you know what? Ain't a thing they can say about it, even though they don't like it. They can say nothing against it because their standing was the fruit of what they've been preaching. And boy, I'll tell you what, you can take that thing all the way to the bank and everything you want to do. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Now that means that they said, okay, would you guys go get a cup of coffee? And they say, well, we're not really, don't need a cup of coffee. He said, would you guys go get a cup of coffee so we can talk about you? And that's what they want to do. And here's our first introduced word, the word counsel. And you're going to find, uh, this is the second counsel. I already gave you one earlier last week. But this is the second time you find the word counsel. And every time you find the word counsel, it'll be against what God is doing. And so it says they conferred among themselves. So they're making them leave so they can say, okay, boys, what are we going to do now? How are we going to get rid of these guys? How are we going to handle this? It's so clear from what I gave you last Thursday night in Matthew chapter 21 about the... um, you know, the guy who dug the vineyard and planted the vineyard and then kept it all about. And then when he sent his son and the leader said, this is the heir, let us seize upon his inheritance and kill him. The conspiracy here against Christ is unparalleled. And it's a thing where they just, they just don't, they just don't want to uh, admit. I mean, they see the fruit They have nothing to say. They have no argument. They hear these guys that are unlearned men, and they hold their own with them, and they notice that they've been with Jesus, and that's got to be the reason, and yet they still will not come to the reality. Verse 16, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed, a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Boy, if that isn't politics at its best. There it is, man. Hey, a real bona fide miracle happened. We can't do anything to change it, and man, we can't even deny it. So what are we going to do? Because we're not going to admit that Jesus Christ is God. See the problem? And you're going to meet a lot of people in life just like that. And it's a thing where, you know, it's a, it's an incredible aspect of this thing. All right. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's going to work really well. Great plan. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God judge you, for we cannot speak the things which we have seen, and we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Uh, and uh, and in, uh, in verse 19 now, this is where he's going to start his fourth sermon. And this is where he's going to let them have it again. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all the men glorified God. Uh, and that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old of whom this miracle of healing was shown. Now there's your next key, 40 years old. So Israel, Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. There it is. Um, So, I mean, it just keeps, you just look for those things. Uh, and, and, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings and the earth stand up and the rulers which gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now you need to mark that. There's that verse I gave you where it says his Christ, clearly showing you that there's two Christ's. Of a truth against thy holy Child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, and uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, for to do uh, whatsoever they uh, had uh, hand uh, they uh, and their in thy counsel delivered before to be done. And now, Lord, behold uh, their threatenings, and grant unto the, thy servants that thou all boldness. Uh, may speak uh, thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and their signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Uh, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they all spake the word of God with boldness. And of course, the notice here, the filling of the Holy Spirit of God, this is like the daily filling that you get. Uh, that makes you bold. This isn't them getting saved all over again like in Pentecost. This is them being filled with it and then speaking boldly, just like God will fill you every day to do the work of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were one heart, one soul, neither any of them that ought the things which he possessed was his own, but all things common. And with great power, uh, with great power, uh, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any uh, that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. This is what we saw back <coughs> in uh, in chapter 2 there or, uh, before we get on to 3, but it's a thing where it, it, it's a wider picture now. And uh, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and uh, distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, uh, who by uh, apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted as son of Consolation, uh, a Levite, in another country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to hold up there, and this is where we get introduced to Barnabas. And uh, the next week we get together, next time we get together, um, then we'll put it, we'll move into chapter five and we'll see how this thing all kind of keeps flowing together.